Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. I'm your host, Joe Campbell, and today joining me, as always, is Nathan Stone. Hello, folks. Just when you thought the fun was over, we're back with one last killing joke. It's without a doubt that Todd Phillips' Joker movie is defying expectations at the box office, as well as critical reception of Walking Phoenix's portrayal of Arthur Fleck as he transforms himself into the laughing criminal, the Joker. Now, we are aware that everyone out there is talking about this film to death, but since both Nathan and I have had a chance to finally see this movie for ourselves uh, recently, we thought it might be, uh, might as well throw in our own two cents about the movie. You know, just about jump it. on the bandwagon while we can. Exactly, because that's all we do is bandwagon. It's, we just ride on everybody else's success. Uh, and we're going to go over whether or not we think that all the attention this movie has been getting, both positive and negative, whether it's really been warranted, or if it's all just one big joke. I mean, without a doubt, I'm going to say this, Joe. This movie has gotten a lot of attention just everywhere on the internet. Like, you just look everywhere, and everyone has their own two cents of what they think of the movie, what it's about, and whether they hate it or not, whether it's as all the hype it's getting. So it's, it's interesting. DC always seems to have a track record of this. Yeah, and the, the reception to this movie in particular has been interesting as far as the waves that it's gone through. And I'll, I'll go into that in our actual discussion of the movie. But uh, all I'll say right now is just that... This, this movie has been very interesting to study before having seen it. Um, this is, what, two, three weeks into when it when it, when it came out at the time that we're recording this? Yeah. I mean, we, we kind of waited on this just because I wanted to make sure you had a chance to see it. Uh, and I was bugging you for the longest time. Like, Joe, I think you really should see this now. Oh, I've been trying to get out to see it. It's just, it's just I've had people that have wanted to go see this with me, and we just haven't been able to make our schedules uh, coincide. So I finally made it happen. I finally got out to see it. And I think in some ways that'll benefit the conversation in the long run, having seen it a few weeks after the actual release. Yep, I agree. But before we get into any of that, let's start about talking about what we've watched on our own recently. So, Nathan, what have you been Mm -hmm. up to? Okay, well, um, I I think like uh, after we record this one, we're going to be doing a a Halloween grab bag, which is something I'm looking forward to. So I've been just trying to kind of brush up on some, you know, zombie movies. Why not? And I thought I'd start with the one that started it all. Uh, George Romero's uh, Night of the Living Dead. So if anyone's not familiar, this is the zombie movie that started and defied the whole genre of the zombie movie. Before then, there was no idea of like what a zombie was, what the characteristics were, and George Romero kind of got some of his friends together, a light crew, film crew. They just shot this out on a barn, and the rest is history. Um, but kind of revisiting this movie again, uh, it's so interesting how hokey it is but also how contemporary it was for its time and how relevant it was for its time um you know Dwayne Jones he's the protagonist of it and he was like one of the first like black actors to actually be the hero of a horror film and it's kind of just cool to see that and it just kind of like breaking grounds like that and uh, it's it's just so f- interesting just to watch that movie again because it's just shot in such a kind of like, you know, handheld camera way, the audio is really bad. The writing's not really up to par, but it's like everything about like what makes zombie movies great was kind of like all started in this film. And so just watching that and just revisiting that is, I don't know, it's kind of just like a very nostalgic, but very, you know, reminiscent kind of experience for me. Yeah, this is a movie that's grown on me over time. I I wasn't in love with it the first time I saw it, but the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it. I, I actually got to see it on the big screen last year, which is pretty 
pretty great experience seeing it all cleaned up in HD and everything. The um, uh, interesting thing about the casting of Dwayne Jones is that I remember seeing or hearing an interview with George Romero where he was talking about so someone someone was asking him about how progressive it was and and how that cast Dwayne Jones and oh were you thinking about that at the time and George Romero basically said like no I just cast him because he was the he, he was great he, I know he, he auditioned and, and I, he was great he's great in the role and I'm like. That, that's how it should be. <laughs> no, no, I, I actually agree. And I think that's the reason why the movie is just, uh, it's just done so well. It's like, you know, he, he, George Romero kind of, I've, I've listened to some like commentary about this and he's actually talked about like, he wasn't thinking about civil rights movement. He wasn't thinking about being progressive. He just wanted to just do a movie that just worked. And Dwayne Jones, as you mentioned, was the best of all the actors. So he wanted him to be the lead. And it's great that, uh, that is that in, in, in casting like that, just without even thinking, he ended up making this big social commentary, whether or not he originally intended it. It's just I don't know. Is it, it, the whole the whole behind the scenes of that movie is fascinating to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if anything, it just plays to how um, timeless the movie is because, like, the ending of that movie is still something that sends shivers up my spine. Especially just how they're using the still photographs and the montage with the audio over it. It's still one of the most harrowing experiences. Yeah, I agree. Um, and kind of in addition to that, I also recently watched Zombieland Double Tap. I need to get to that. That just came out uh, since we recorded this, this this past weekend. Yeah, it just like premiered this weekend. And um, honestly, as, as much as people are raving about this movie and saying, oh, it's so much funnier than it is from the first one, um, I, I, I wasn't too impressed. I mean, it kind of lives up to the first movie, but... I don't think it really does anything new or different. It just kind of had it. Okay. I guess this is the best way I could describe it. So in the trailers, there's a shot where basically Luke Wilson comes into the picture and it's almost like a mirror reflection of Woody Harrison's character. And I kind of felt like that's what the movie was doing throughout the whole thing. It was just duplicating the same jokes that we saw from the first one. I, I, it was still a good time. I think I still laughed. Uh, if, Oh, here's another thing. If you're watching the movie, please stay. Do not leave when the credits start rolling because the best scene happens during the credits. I'll be I'll be honest. I haven't heard anything about this movie. Like I've heard nobody talking about it, so I, I have no idea what to expect. No, no. Honestly, like I said, you'll have a good time. I just think uh, for me, I I just had this expectation of us seeing something different or you know interesting or kind of delving more into just seeing these characters grow. But I don't know. I kind of felt like it was uh, the same pie. Is it the, the same, same director as the first one? I mean, uh, he is the same director. Um, I just kind of felt like you know with a lot of stuff that they could have done. Um, I was hoping for uh, they didn't. It didn't bring delight, but it was still a fun movie. You know, Woody Harrelson's fun. Um, and I think, uh, you know, all the other characters they kind of introduced are, some of them are short-lived. Um, oh, one character I just kind of got really annoyed with is uh, the girl who played uh, Madison. I, I get the whole dumb blonde joke, but this was one where they stretched out way too much. And Zoe Dutch, I, I know she's just, she's playing it and, She's obviously just having fun with it, but I don't know. That was one joke that got old really quick. Well, fair enough, fair enough. I'll, I'll uh, yeah, I'll check, I'll check this out this week and hopefully have my thoughts in, uh, in one of our future podcast episodes. Okay. Uh, what about you? Let's uh, let's hand the ball to you now. All right. So first of all, I watched, I rewatched House Two: The Second Story from 1987. <laughs> oh my god! Didn't you guys do a, a film literates review of this? Yes, we did. 
So a quick little synopsis. The new owner of a sinister house gets involved with reanimated corpses and demons searching for an ancient Aztec skull with magic powers. That synopsis does not do this movie justice. This is a weird, crazy WTF movie where anything can happen. There are no rules, and I love it. Yep. It's like, as you mentioned in uh, your film review of it, it's like a little kid was like, you know what I want in this movie? I want dinosaurs. And you know what else I want in this movie? An old prospector grandpa who comes in and saves a day. And it's it just has that kind of tone throughout everything. And I want John Ratzenberger playing a an, an electrician slash adventurer who finds interdimensional portals in the house walls. It's, it's great. And uh, so here's the thing. This, this movie has become part of my annual October viewing tradition. And, and, and I do. I, I watch this movie every year and I love it because... It, it is random. It is funny. It's I, I, I've seen a lot of people complain that it's too silly compared to the first movie because the first house was a horror comedy. It wasn't necessarily a, a gritty movie or a, a really graphic movie, but it did kind of feel a little bit more dangerous than House 2. House 2 almost leaves horror to the wayside entirely in this in kind of being a very over-the-top crazy movie like here okay we got to throw in all this fun stuff it's, it's, it's a ride but what makes the movie work is that you actually kind of get invested in the characters i mean they everything is very surface level but the characters are interesting to watch mm-hmm. whereas in any other movie this could just devolve into oh it's a series of random events and it's overstated it's welcome i never feel like that with this movie because it changes up the kind of weirdness every you know 20 minutes 15 minutes or so because it, it's it starts off as like oh it's a haunted house movie oh now it's a uh a time travel adventure movie oh now it's a western and there's zombies and there's caterpillar dogs all over the place like like it, it changes things up enough that it keeps it interesting and you you like the characters the, the zombie prospector grandpa gramps i love them I want a whole movie just about him, and he's in the whole movie. I know. I mean, honestly, I think what just adds to the magic and the charm about this movie is the fact that it's written by Fred Decker. Well, it wasn't written by Fred Decker. It was. Oh, no, it, it, <laughs> Fred Decker is. I could go on about this, yeah, about his connection to the series. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to keep it keep it brief. Basically, Fred Decker came up with an idea for a movie about a um, a guy that's haunted by his uh, uh vietnam buddy that he mm. left to die and he uh, never did anything with that story idea now his uh roommate who i think was ethan wiley and uh he had heard for decker talk about this story idea and so when decker was moving on to do other stuff like i think he did monster squad and that's another great halloween movie if it wants is to check that. Uh, his roommate said, hey, are you going to do anything with that uh, that that house movie idea? And he said, no, you can go ahead and, and, and take it. So his, his his friend adapted it from his idea. And then House 2 was just kind of a spinoff of that, basically. Uh, and gotcha. interestingly enough, uh, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago about a screenplay for a movie that Fred Decker had written but never actually produced about zombie soldiers coming back and invading a small suburban town. That kind of had his inklings in the house idea that he had before. Uh, yes, so, every, yeah. so, so he's kind of circled around this series, but he's he hasn't directly written anything for it. Gotcha. No, I think you had talked about that in like a previous podcast most recently. So yeah, yeah. Uh, an unknown screenplay that still exists out there that originally was going to be directed by John Carpenter. 
Uh, exactly. Yeah, it was written for John Carpenter to do, and no one ever made it. And I'm very sad because it was an excellent screenplay. Yes, it needs to come back. Uh, another thing I'll get into real quick. I watched Creep Show for the first time. Uh, just finished it earlier today, actually. Is it the original Creep Show or is this the new Shutter Creep Show? The original Creep Show, the 1982, directed by George A. Romero, an anthology which tells five terrifying tales based on the EC horror comic books of the 1950s. It's kind of funny that, you know, we both watched uh, George Romero movies. I was thinking about that said. when you were talking about Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. So you, you, you've seen Creep Show, right? I have, yeah. It was a long time ago, but I just remember how bizarre and just off the wall some of the stories were, but it had that Stephen King vibe to it. It had just that bizarre supernatural element where anything is happening. You don't know what's going on, but it's just, yeah, it's just, it was very entertaining yet scary. And yeah, so, so I had never actually seen this movie before, which I'm kind of surprised because it's right up my alley of 80s horror comedy. Uh yeah, Stephen King wrote the screenplay. As near as I can find, it's not actually based on anything specific. Like, like as, as as in there was no creep show comic books, but it's based on those kinds of horror comics that I used to read as kids. So, you know, it, it, it's based on like Tales of the Crypt and that kind of stuff. And, and George Romero plays into that so delightfully in this mm -hmm. movie with the comic book overlays and then mm -hmm. the the deeply saturated lighting with the you know, the reds and the blues and then like the cardboard backgrounds that draw attention and the really bad green screen that's going yeah on. everything works so well for what this movie is going for it's such a fun little movie i i love seeing Les Les leslie nielsen popped up and and i was worried about how he was going to go because leslie nielsen is a fantastic actor but i'm like he's not doing parody here like, like, like this movie isn't quite parody but it's certainly comedic, and he just nailed it. He was fantastic in this movie. It's a, it's a right balance of tone. Like this, something like this, if it was given to any other director, I kind of feel like they would either just play too much on how hokey this is, or just try to make it so serious that it would just drain all the fun out. But I don't know. George Romero just has this right balance of he knows it's camp, he knows it's kind of silly, but he's still going to make it work to his advantage. And I don't know. I think that's just a, a talent of his. Yeah, I need to watch more George Romero stuff outside of his uh, Night of the Living Dead movies because mm -hmm. I don't feel like I have a really good idea of who he is as a filmmaker. It's, it's hard to picture, oh, what is his style? What is his voice? And I think I need to watch other movies because Creepshow is so incredibly different than any of the other, you know, his his dead movies. But at the same time, I could, if you told me, oh, it's the same guy who did both of them, I could pin, pinpoint little bits of, uh, oh, he has this very, he has kind of a cult sensibility and he has a sense of humor about things and he has this kind of uh, surrealist style at times too. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, his filmography is not very expansive. I mean, a lot of it still just dabbles in the horror genre. Mm -hmm. Uh but he's uh he kind of has a lot of interesting titles like he's done the crazies season of the witch pretty much a lot of just the dead movies land of the dead Die of the dead <laughs> survival of the dead i mean i bet if he lived on a little bit longer <clears throat> he would just continue all the dead movies yeah and i i need to watch uh, uh, martin as well obviously that's one that's on my to watch list just because um you know that that'll be something we'll talk about when we do the halloween uh, grab bag episode but it was just like it was one that was thrown up in this documentary i saw and i don't know it piqued my interest so anyway i would uh, uh, your, your knowledge may vary as far as the individual shorts in creep show but as a whole it's a, it's it's a fun it's it's scary stories to tell in the dark for adults basically Pretty much. Uh, so yeah, I would recommend it. And then lastly, I will talk about 
The Omen, 1976, directed by Richard Donner. Uh, so I got the uh, Shout Factory put out a, a collection of all of the Omen movies recently, and I'm a big fan of especially Omen 1 and Omen 3. So I picked that up, and I was why, watching... Why not Omen 2, though? Uh, I, I, I might actually rewatch Omen 2, but I remember not liking that one as much uh, the first time I saw it, which was a few years back. It's, I think it's kind of funny. I think for you, uh, the second sequel of any franchise is either a hit or miss for you like for house the second movie is your favorite with the omen the second movie is not so much your favorite no that's true um and i and i'm looking forward to rewatching omen 3 because i remember i remember omen 3 being almost like this kind of weird cheesy christian movie underlaid under this horrifying like violent horror movie yeah it's really trying to push the evangelist message out there <laughs> which which i kind of liked it's just how goofy everything clashed in omen 3 omen 1 though is, is interesting because the, the omen is almost in a, a a category of what i call the unholy trilogy of movies with rosemary's baby and the exorcist as in kind of like oh supernatural movies about demonic children and that kind of stuff and i think you can tell a lot about a person depending on which one of those three movies is their favorite the Exorcist is almost like the prestigious character drama with uh, this crazy horror stuff thrown in there. Rosemary's Baby is almost more of like an indie art house film. And then The Omen is is like a classed up trashy B movie, <laughs> which explains why I love The Omen is my favorite out of those three movies. But the, because the great thing, though, about The Omen, though, is like, yeah, it, it is that way as you describe it. But all the actors are playing it very serious. Well, that's what I mean that- by, by, by being, being a classed up trashy B movie, because on paper, this is a very schlocky movie. Like, 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 like t- taking everything else not into the equation, it's simply it's about a a demonic little kid who makes people jump out windows and get decapitated, and a guy who's running around the world on some sort of quest to find out how to kill this kid with these daggers. And it's, it's like a very schlocky movie at its at its core. But it's, you got Richard Donner behind the camera, and he he, he knows how to shoot a, a movie that that. That looks really good, and I mean, for instance, Superman. Take Superman, for instance. Superman is super cheesy, but he makes you believe in Superman and care about Superman and all these characters, despite how cheesy that movie is. And he does a similar thing with the Omen here. Right. Uh, you got Gregory Peck. As soon as you sign on Gregory Peck, your movie is classy as hell. I mean, it's because of him. I think uh, Boys of Brazil is as good as it is. <laughs> exactly. The movie is made in the best possible way where it's a silly premise taken dead seriously. And it just makes it a hell of a lot of fun to watch. So I, I always enjoy watching this movie. No, it's a good one. It's a good one to watch, especially for Halloween. Absolutely. I mean, that uh, Jerry Goldsmith score, it's, it's still classic. That score, by the way, like Jerry Goldsmith had guts to really go for it. I mean, I mean, the, the, the score practically overwhelms every scene that it's in. Like, like it, it's almost laughable about how over the top it is, but it works. It, does. it makes the whole movie feel very, uh, very gothic and classy. Uh, anyway, that's what that's that's all I got for this week. Uh, so, without further ado, let's lead into our talk on Joker. Arthur, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> This is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. And finally, 
world where everyone thinks they can do my job, check out this guy. When I was a little boy and told people I was gonna be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. Alright, so, Nate, it's been, what, a few weeks since you've seen the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, and it's kind of funny, like, looking, as we do this podcast, it kind of reminds me, um, earlier this year, um, I had done a, a podcast on the, the movie when the trailer first was released, and just our initial response, like, is this going to be a good movie? Is it going to live up to what we've seen already about the Joker and the DC lore? So, kind of watching it now, and seeing how the rest of the world and the rest of the media has, like, responded and received it, it's kind of fun now to kind of like sit down and discuss this and, and really kind of have a better, you know, setting of what this felt like. Yeah, we're we're beyond the point where Joker was just this weird project that was announced where it was uh, uh, Walking Phoenix is going to be in this movie. What? the Todd Phillips, director of The Hangover, he's directing this movie. What? Scorsese's producer is producing the movie. What? And for the past year, it's been nothing but speculation. What kind of movie is this? What? How is it going to fit into the DC universe? Now, the movie has come out. Everything's laid out on the table. We've all had time to see it and process it. So just uh, uh, initial thoughts What right out of the gate. What did you like? What did you, what did you not like? Just what's off the top of your head? I mean, I guess uh, having a time to kind of like uh, sit down and like think about this movie and, and really see like, okay, I will say this. I like what it's doing, but I don't think it's doing it well. And now hear me out on this. I'm not saying I dislike the movie, but I think there's stuff about it that doesn't make it live up to its full potential. So the story in a nutshell is, you know, basically we have this character named Arthur Fleck who we understand from very early on he has a mental condition. He, you know, has problems, you know, socially being accepted in society. He works as like a side gig clown who goes to like, you know, businesses that are going out of business and being a, you know, a twirling sign clown or going to hospitals to entertain kids. And we see him really striving to be a comedian and him just getting hit on again and again by society, by delinquents who just don't care about him. His boss doesn't care about him and he feels like he's getting picked on. And then we just start seeing him transforming into this madman who is going to fight back. And I guess as I was watching this, and Joe, maybe you feel the same way, all I could think of was Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. I mean, while I'm saying I think Todd Phillips is his own version of like the Taxi Driver storyline, I think it falls short in areas. But I will not deny, I had quite an experience watching this movie. It was one of those movies where I went in and came out feeling something completely different. So whenever I look at one of these kind of subversive superhero movies, that's a, oh, it's a different take on the superhero genre. I'm thinking about when uh, Deadpool came out. Oh, it's the same old Marvel shtick, but R-rated. Oh, it's L Logan. It's uh, this, this lone man uh, gunslinger movie, but it's a superhero movie. Uh, in all of these kind of reinventions of the superhero movie that we've been seeing within these major uh, superhero franchises. I've personally never felt like we've gotten a movie that isn't a comic book movie or isn't a superhero movie. So, so for instance, Deadpool, obviously it's a superhero movie. Uh, Logan, subversive as it is and interesting as it is as, as a Western take, but it still feels like a, a, an, an X-Men movie, especially with some of the, the stuff towards the end and the fights toward, towards the end. Joker is the first movie that I feel like this isn't a comic book movie like, like like this feels just like an indie film i think that's uh maybe a big reason why 
I'm actually on the fence about this. Well, actually, no, I'm not on the fence about this, but I actually fervently believe that I don't think this works as a DC Origins movie. I know like that's been something, you know, Warner Brothers in DC has been really promoting, saying, we're going to see this new and different take on uh, the Joker. But I really don't feel that way about this. If you actually take out the whole Batman lore in this movie, I think it stands alone as a really good study on mental illness and social class warfare as it is. And I, I think that's kind of what's really refreshing about this because you're right, Joe. It's the first one that doesn't feel like a comic book movie. I think I think I've talked with you, Nathan, uh, mm-hmm. off, off off the air about about my 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 sequel pitches mm-hmm. for big franchises. So, for instance, I have I have ideas for how to do a Jaws five that's a continuation of Jaws: The Revenge. Right. I, I have ideas how to do Alien sequels, but all of my ideas are stuff that are. Uh, they're they're weird ideas that I think the mainstream audience would hate, but they're different, and I love them. And this is that kind of a movie, which is why I think just right out of the gate, my my initial thoughts are very positive on this movie. I I, I enjoyed what it went for, and I enjoyed what it did, and I appreciate that, and I want to see more movies like that. My my first thought coming out of this movie was, I wish that DC would kill the DCEU and just make more experimental one-off movies like this like oh what if we had a batman movie not necessarily in this universe but like a a new take on batman that we've never seen before what if we had a new kind of uh, i don't know aquaman movie that's completely different no and actually you kind of bring up an interesting point and this is something i actually back in the day when like i heard like oh dc is going to give all these directors carte blanche to do these superhero movies the way they want them to do um this kind of was is a good example of what I really think would help DC right now to its advantage, to help separate and differentiate it right now from Marvel. Because right now, I think so many people are used to the MCU and how formulaic and how consistent that is and just making all these characters work in the same universe. Whereas like in a lot of comic book lore, a lot of just like early editions of comic books, the universe has kept changing. Storylines kept changing. Like there's always that, well, what if this happened? Or what if that happened to Batman? Or what if this happened to Aquaman? And right now I think the DCEU is really trying hard to be replicating that Marvel formula with the Justice League right now. But I almost am kind of agreeing with you. I think they need to do a lot more of these one-off stories because they're stronger. They're focused. They're not so much wrapped around like, oh, I need to show how the Joker ties into Batman and how Ben Affleck's Batman will play into the Justice League. Eliminate that. Just focus really on like, we're looking at this character and we're telling his story. I, it was actually the same hope I had for when Suicide Squad first came out because it was so different. I had a feeling like I wanted it to just be its own thing in its own universe. But then they were just trying to tie that back into the Justice League. So I think that's what hurt that movie. But with this one, it stands alone as its own vibe. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I was so high on the movie going out of it. That on top of the fact that I I just love the way the movie is made. I love the way the story is told. I love the questioning reality versus uh, fantasy kind of aspect to the movie, which I I, I haven't seen King of Comedy, but I hear that calls back to that a lot. I I Mm -hmm. like uh, Walking Phoenix is phenomenal in the movie. He is so good. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think David and I were talking about this in the podcast we did earlier this year, but Joaquin Phoenix is just really good at playing very damaged and disturbed characters. I mean, look at everything from when he was doing back in Gladiator to The Master to pretty much 
every movie he's done, he loves taking on those roles. So obviously when he took this, there was something there that drew him to it that he saw, hey, there's something that I feel like I could bring my strengths to. And he does. He brings his A game. Oh, yeah. I also like the way that Todd Phillips shoots this movie. I think it looks beautiful. He makes everything look scuzzy and grimy, but it still looks nice. He uses the roving camera and shallow depth of field very well, which a lot of times I get frustrated at filmmakers that use the close-up shaky cam too much. He doesn't use shaky cam, but he does use a lot of close-ups where the camera is moving handheld a lot. But it works really well, and it's still very beautiful. I, I mean, I mean, for instance, the, the the shot on the poster, that whole scene when he's dancing in the in the bathroom, it's a beautifully shot little scene. So I love everything about the craft of this movie. Everything is put together very well. However, I don't know what I think of the movie as a whole, especially when it comes to its message. And I I I, I think I'm generally positive on it. But I just saw it yesterday, and I'm still working through it through my head, and I don't know. I, I think I have a, an answer for that, because I am also, this has been bugging me ever since I first saw it, and I was like, what is it about this movie I don't like? And honestly, for me, I think it's kind of part of its execution. No offense to Todd Phillips, but I think his style of filmmaking and his style of storytelling is kind of sloppy. I mean, you look at everything he's done from the Hangover movies to Due Date, it's it's kind of evident there. He he does have his own tone of filmmaking, but there's problems with it. And I think it's kind of shows a lot more here. And I see where he's going with it. I see the story he's trying to tell, but I think as far as the execution goes, there's some choices which I feel like he could have done better. Um, here's an example. So while Joaquin Phoenix's line delivery throughout this is phenomenal, like everything that comes out of his mouth is just, you know, a gem. I was really disappointed with just a lot of the other actors, um, Francis Conroy, you know, who plays his mother. There's just some line delivery from her I didn't feel like could carry its weight. And I f- wanted that. I wanted to see what she said really deliver that blow or that punch to him in a way that could only affect him emotionally. And I just wasn't feeling that. And maybe for me, that could have just been on how Todd Phillips wrote those characters, how much attention he gave to those characters. Because it feels like he gave more attention to Joaquin Phoenix and letting him evolve that character. Um, Whereas for this, I don't know. I think the writing does suffer in those areas, especially on the supporting cast. Um, I think another reason why I kind of have an issue with this movie is kind of mentioned this, I just had a hard time switching off my film critic button because every time I was watching a scene, I was like, oh, that was from Taxi Driver. Oh, that's from King of Comedy. Oh, that's from Network. Oh, that's from Mean Streets. And I was just like calling out all the references because they were so blatantly obvious. And for me, I guess that was taking me out of the movie experience because I, I bet if I came in to the movie with like fresh eyes and I had no idea what these movies were, this would have been a better experience. But for me, I, it was kind of really hard to switch up that cinephile in me. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because I, I didn't have any of those problems with the movie. <laughs> well, I won't spoil the ending, but there's one scene that happens at the end that I could have been really affected by what it was going for. But because I had seen something like Network, I was like, oh, well, yeah, I this this isn't hitting me the same way that it's hitting everyone else. But like I said, I had a chance to go see it again and I, I it still was a problem for me, but not so much. I think what's just a problem with me is just the other characters. I felt like I didn't feel how these other characters personally or emotionally affected Arthur Fleck's character as we, as Todd Phillips wanted it to be. 
Um, and I just wanted more of that. Yeah, I didn't have that problem. I, 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 I think, I think, I think a lot of it is because, to me at least, the the movie is about disconnections and uh, not necessarily mis- miscommunications. But, but let's take the example that that you brought up of uh, Arthur Fleck and his mom. Uh, I think there is supposed to be a kind of a disconnect there because as we goes on, you kind of realize that he doesn't really know her, and she's really kind of disconnected from the world, as you can tell even from the first time she's on screen. You know, the, mm-hmm. it's just, just there's something off about her, something off about him, and these two people. They sit down and they watch this nightly show together, but they don't really know each other, even though they think they do. Uh, and to me, that's how Arthur is with everybody. He constantly he misinterprets people. He thinks that 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 people have good intentions when in reality they have bad intentions. And he he sees what he wants to see. And so, he, because he's so involved in his own interior world, he doesn't really have any connections to anybody on the outside. And, the way other people reacted to him, I think, was really genuine in that fact that it's kind of like he is a very broken, uh, potentially dangerous person, and nobody is taking any and nobody's taking him seriously. Nobody knows how to react to him. Uh, I'm thinking about on the bus when he uh, you know, bursts out laughing and the, the woman is offended and then he hands her the card to say that I, I have this condition. That's how everybody sees him, even mm-hmm. if they know about him. Yeah. And actually, that's one thing I will give Todd Phillips credit for, especially the, his production crew, is how committed they stayed with Fleck. Um, the, the way it's shot, even like shots that were just more of like we had this voyeurism as opposed to kind of like just really being in his head and seeing the world as he sees, it did a great job of us being committed to his perspective of the world all the way through. And, and actually, if anyone will go online and actually look at other people's reviews of this, there's a lot of the reasons why it's written the way it's written and how it's set up the way it's set up because it, there's a lot of stuff I was missing from the first time I saw it and seeing it a second time, I was able to catch things. I'm like, Oh, that was pretty clever. I didn't say that. The problems I might have with this movie though. Uh, and this is where I have my, have my, my, my misgivings. There's a quote out there. I forget who, who, who said it, but it's, it's, it's that a, uh, um, what's important is that it is, is not what a movie is about, but how it's about it. Now, I think the movie, the how it's about it is excellent. I think the movie is very well done conceptually. Uh, I don't know exactly what the movie is about, and I don't know that Todd Phillips does either, because it dabbles with a whole bunch of different ideas. And this is important for this movie, because whatever stance or whatever perception this movie is giving on these topics could sway it into being a very dangerous movie, potentially. And I think I think this is where the controversy came up initially, where people were worried about, oh no, this is going to inspire mass shootings, and it's going to be the, the way portrays mental illness is 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 going to be damaging, or not, not not even mental illness at the at, at the time it was just about people were worried about the way is going to affect uh, mentally unstable people, da- dangerous people, or dangerously mentally unstable people, you know? Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Cause I've been kind of like getting that vibe just even in the aftermath of this movie, like there's still people who are talking about it even before it, there's, you know, critics and other media sponsors who are talking about that. And even watching it, I still have a hard time, like what the movie is trying to say about social class warfare or even just mental illness in general like is it trying to say we should empathize with it more should we not empathize with it it doesn't really take a stand and if it does take a stand it's very ambiguous or it's very obscure 
Yeah, you see, because because you you see my my initial takeaway from the movie uh, as far as that that goes uh, towards the end of the movie, I was thinking, well, this isn't about him. He is obviously a dangerous person that is being failed by a system that isn't handling him properly. He isn't getting the attention that he needs to live a healthy life, and nobody else around him realizes uh, how dangerous he is to himself and others. But then. He, he kind of says that. And my, my problem with that is that at that point, that message makes sense because here is this character who is being failed by a system that needs to help him. And he is obviously a very hurt, damaged character who doesn't know any better. But then, but then you have him say that. And all of a sudden it's, 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 it's like, it's almost like having the villain of the movie state the the moral of the movie and you're like well wait a second now i don't know if i agree with that because of the viewpoint it's coming from and and that's actually something i do want to actually talk about after having a chance to see it a second time um and actually watching this other youtuber's uh review of all the easter eggs through it the message of the movie actually changed for me a second time i actually saw that maybe this isn't so much of us seeing how a system failed him Maybe this is just how he's spinning it to the audience to fool us. Um, I won't go into too much of like what this reveal might be. There's a, a YouTuber, maybe we could uh, mention him in the comments, but he did this really good like dissection of like all the Easter eggs and what that might be telling about the story. Maybe that audiences missed the first time because I certainly missed it and I had no idea what the movie was about. But seeing it a second time, I actually see that maybe what this is actually trying to show is a villain who is trying to create sympathy for him but doing it so loosely, you see the holes in it. And that might just be also just the core of what the Joker is about is he'll weave a joke and he'll weave a story. And maybe what he's trying to pitch to you is something to tug at your heartstrings or actually make you just not like him in general. But either way, this guy's review of it made me change my perspective. Um, and I don't know, I kind of see it now is it's almost kind of like a, a glass menagerie of just like you see this prism of everything that maybe Fleck is trying to project to the audience and none of it really coming clear, but somehow as a whole, it still kind of holds up. Yeah. And, and if that's the case, and this, this is the other, the other half of the coin to this movie is that so, okay, if it's not about the system failing him, it's about getting us to relate to this character and that to me is a much more problematic movie, especially if, if, if as you say, it's about uh, him spinning his own narrative to us to get us to empathize with him, because that is that is a lot more dangerous of a movie. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> because, that's a... because all of a sudden we're like, oh, this isn't a healthy character, and if we're supposed to see him as an unhealthy character, then we can talk. If we're supposed to see him as, oh no let's let's start sympathizing with him and reading into his mindset then that gets other people who 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 want to sympathize with him and who want to to relate themselves to him all of a sudden they have a leg to stand on and they can say hey look he's just like me let me use this character as a role model and that's a problem yeah i know and actually this is where i think taxi driver comes into this narrative um because i think that's the reason why i could see so much of scorsese through this movie because scorsese is really good at that especially with taxi drivers like travis bickle going back to robert de niro's portrayal of that character he is not a character that you really should sympathize with yes you understand where he's coming from but to really kind of agree or even just decide with his decision at the end 
to do the kind of killings he was doing is a very dangerous notion to go for. But I think that's just the whole magic of the narrative that at the time when Taxi Driver first came out, that was the point is you're not so really supposed to feel rewarded for him going to this um, point. But you just need to see this is the journey he took. And it's very similar with uh, Arthur Flick. You're not really supposed to sympathize with him. You're not really supposed to sympathize with everyone or even just, well, if the system's broken, how do we fix it? It's really just you can just see the cogs working. And maybe that was just the whole point of the movie is not to really make a, a, a statement about either, but just really show how this character thinks and works and, you know, what cautions or what red tape you need to put up for yourself. So you don't even get to that point. Yeah, I don't know. So I think, I think for me, that's a real sticking point is the reason I don't know what I think about this movie. I think conceptually, I like the movie. I like the execution of the movie. I like everything about the movie, except I don't know what I think about the message of the movie. And I, I think I would need to hear some more interviews with Todd Phillips to get his perspective, get Joaquin Phoenix's perspective to really go a little bit more in depth about this before I make a final judgment on the movie. But as a whole, I, I enjoyed the experience. Mm-hmm. No, I, I did too, even as unsettling as it was. And even just as uh, problematic, I found some stuff. It did leave an impression on me. And I think it's just one of those movies where it's like, I think sometimes the sign of a really good movie are going to be ones that you don't come out with a clear decision of how you felt about it. I mean, a good example of this, Joe, is like when we saw Silence and when we saw um, Michael Haneke's Amour, those are two movies as as wonderfully executed as they are. They leave you with very questionable like decisions. Like, I don't know if I really side with what this character was doing, but it gave you an experience. It told a story. And whether you agree with them or not, it showed you a certain light and a certain perspective. And sometimes if that leaves you mulling it over in your head for a few days, it, that's sometimes the legacy. I have one more thing I want to talk about the movie, but it might get into to, uh, spoiler, spoiler, territory. spoiler territory. So we want to put a spoiler alert up here. Uh, yes, we can do that right now. So if anyone has not seen the Joker yet or is hesitant about seeing the Joker yet, uh, please skip to the end of this podcast. So I want to talk about specifically, uh, not about the ending, but sequel potential. Do, do, you, do we want to see a sequel to this? And if so, what would that sequel look like? I'm going to actually say it right now. I don't want a sequel. Um, because I think what this movie was saying, what it was doing was just enough. I don't think this really works as like a trilogy, like the, the dark Knight trilogy worked. I think there was an arc, all three of those movies were able to tell. Whereas with this, it's a certain character. You saw him complete his arc, his transformation, and I'm content. So for me, I really don't want a sequel. I'm kind of on the fence about this actually, because I don't buy that this character could become this crime kingpin of Gotham. Uh, I don't think he's crafty enough. He doesn't really start a movement in this movie. And he, he, he stumbles into a movement. He accidentally starts a movement. Like everything that happens in this movie, he kind of stumbles upon. And I can't picture what this version of the, of the Joker would be in the future. Say, what about when Batman comes along? And you see, that goes back to my original comment I said at the beginning of this. I don't think this works as a DC Origins movie because, first off, the character Arthur Fleck 
does not appear anywhere in the DC comic lore of the Joker's background, even like as far as like to the killing joke. Even so, you make an interesting point. He doesn't show the mastermind or even just the caliber of rising to the kingpin status of someone who can actually have followers. Um, and in the 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 video I was referencing that does like a dissection of this, you don't really know if this movement that's going on is because of him or something he's imagining. And I think that's just something that I think I like the movie as being ambiguous about that is because I really don't think he is the Joker. He's not the Joker that DC fans are so used to. He is just Arthur Fleck. But that's almost why I kind of want to see a sequel to this movie is because I want to see what he could become like saying like, okay, what if he is the Joker Joker that we know from the future? How does he get there? What kind of a Batman are we going to be seeing in this world? Like in my warped mind, Batman isn't a vigilante in a series. He's like, I don't know, an an, an attorney or like a, a a politician or something. Like like Bruce Wayne grows up to fight crime on a different level than Batman does historically. And I'm like, like that's that's a terrible idea for a Batman movie. But I think it'll be an interesting sequel to this movie specifically i mean we'll have to see we know that matt reeves has his version of the batman coming out maybe this might play into the storyline that todd phillips created here who knows um i just think personally for me i think whatever this movie was trying to say said it well enough that i don't think it really merits a sequel and honestly I, that was what, going back to that comment I said about DC has a chance of doing something original here where it's making these one-off movies that really don't play into the bigger DCEU storyline. These can just be one-offs to just tell a character study or just a commentary about you know mental illness or social class warfare that it doesn't really need. In fact, that's another thing. You could actually take out the whole Bruce Wayne element of this. I was going to get around to that. That's uh, my, 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 my least liked thing about the movie was yeah. the whole Thomas Wayne subplot. It yeah. felt shoved in. You could have cut it out without making a huge difference. I mean, honestly, even just the very end, uh, because we're in spoiler territory, where it shows Bruce Wayne's parents getting shot. I think you could have easily taken that out and the movie would have still stood on its own two legs. The, there was the whole, no reason for that to be there. Absolutely not. Other than just it pandering to the DC audience, which honestly, I'm going to let you know something. The one thing that was offending me, actually, when I went and saw this movie, was how many families were bringing their kids to see it. <laughs> I don't oh know if that gosh. happened with you, but I had a huge problem with that. It's literally rated R. It literally is showing disturbing images. And parents are still saying, oh, because it's the DC. Um, we could take our kids to it. I'm like, no, no. And actually coming out and hearing kids mimicking Joaquin Phoenix's laughter kind of made me cringe a bit. Well, yeah, because his laughter isn't supposed to be this cool, iconic laughter. No, it's, it's a laughter it's, it's, of pain. It's a guy, it's a guy with, a, with a mental condition. <laughs> yeah, and actually just that whole laughter, it's one of anguish. It's one of torment. It's like... And this is something, uh, I guess that's another reason why I'm so angry of how this has been promoted so much as like a DC movie is because it's misleading audiences to think this plays into the whole DC narrative, which I don't think it does. I like it just being a one-off story. It said what I need to say, and I, I just don't want to encourage another sequel. I would love to see just more one-off stories, if, 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 if nothing else. So I agree. I want to see more one-off stories because I think... There's a lot of great characters in the DC comic book lore, and all of them could work as their own standalone movie. And I think that's what this was a test pilot for. And I agree with you, Joe. I like this to kind of be seen again in different other characters and different stories. Maybe not Arthur Fleck, 
but different characters. Uh, last thing before we wrap up, uh, do you think this movie has award season opportunities? I'm going to say this. It won the Golden Lion at the uh, Venice Film Festival. I think that's a good, clear chance that Warner Brothers is going to make this their uh, Oscar grab bag. Like, they're really going to push for it. Yeah, this is the first superhero movie that I can, well, superhero movie in, in heavy quotes, that I, I think actually stands a good chance of at least being nominated for Best Picture and uh, Walking Phoenix obviously is going to get a nomination for Best Actor. If not win it, but we'll yeah, have to yeah, see. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a surefire thing right now. Best Picture, I think there's a good chance this one will get nominated. And I think a lot of it is because, again, this isn't really a comic book movie. It's a complicated character study. <laughs> and that's why I'm kind of hoping the rest of the internet will back off of defending it being a comic book movie. Because I think that's where Warner Brothers has the strongest hand in actually positioning themselves for the Oscar race. Um I guess also for me, as much as I can see this going for the Oscars, I kind of feel a little um, backsided in a way because it kind of reminds me of when The Dark Knight came out, how revolutionary that movie was, and it didn't even get nominated for Best Picture. I mean, it got Best you know, Supporting Actor, Heath Ledger, who did a fantastic portrayal of the Joker, but I felt that movie commented a lot on just like the current you know political climate at the time and now this movie's kind of stealing that thunder so i don't know i'm mixed feelings well yeah i i if you put this movie with the dark knight head to head for oscar chances like if these both came out the same year i mean they obviously wouldn't but but if they did i, w- I would i would still say joker has a, has the odds of being nominated whereas dark knight doesn't because dark knight great as dark knight is it's still a quote-unquote comic book movie at its at its heart. It's it's a different kind of comic book movie, and it's a much more interesting movie than than the Oscar voters may give it credit for. But it's still obviously a Batman movie. Oh, yeah. uh, jo- Joker is so far removed from a comic book movie that it's again it's basically just like an it, it, it's it's more in line with like an indie drama. Oh than yeah, a comic book movie, which is why I think that this one has very heavy chances of actually being nominated. Yeah, I just think it'd be hilarious like if this goes all the way to the Oscars and Avengers Endgame doesn't even get nominated. Yeah. It's a fun movie. I like Endgame. It's not going to get it's not going to win. <laughs> oh, I I mean we'll see. I mean, I don't know. The Oscars are now bound to surprise us with anything. So, we'll have to see. Anyway, do you have anything else to say before we wrap up? Um what was your thoughts on Zenny Beats? in the whole thing. She plays the imaginary girlfriend that Arthur Fleck thinks he's having a relationship with after his brief encounter on the elevator. Like- I thought she was fine. The reason she was there was just to be another step towards really wearing down on Arthur and making him unwind because it was, it was a waterfall effect of a whole bunch of little things that led up to, you know, the, uh, him thinking that he's the son of Thomas Wayne and then finding out that his mother abused him as, as a kid and then also finding out that his relationship with Zazie Beats w- wasn't real. So it's, 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 it's all part of the escalation. And I think that her character also helped to give us a perspective, uh, yet yeah, another perspective of, of, of how people see Arthur in the real world because seeing how she reacted to him in his fantasy sequences was helpful in saying like, oh, if this this isn't how people react to him and having her react to him that way was very off. Yeah, I guess I guess that was one thing about it. Like I saw how she played into this whole like narrative. I just think there's that one point when she knocks on the door, it's like, you were following me, weren't you? And her just being so casual about it. I kind of called it at that point. I'm like, this isn't real. This is in his head. 
Well, yeah, especially when when uh, we'd seen him before in the audience uh, watching uh, Robert De Niro's show and having the, the spotlight be on him and have everyone be, be friendly. But to me, that that was almost like a uh, the movie coming down and saying, hey, look, we're going to be showing you things from his perspective and the way people react to him in his mind is going to be the way he wants people to react to him. It's not going to be the way people actually realistically react to him. Now, here's a bigger question. Do you think he killed her? I saw someone else say that recently, too, and I don't know where people got that. I never got that impression. Well, well, because as soon as like she, it's revealed to him that this was not real and she doesn't know who he is, we just cut away from that to him putting the dye in his hair, and we have no idea how he left that scene. Well, well, we did. We, we, saw, we saw him walk out the door. <laughs> we saw him walk out of the door. But did we hear or see her ever again? No. No, no. I never got the impression that we needed to. Once the reveal had happened and we realized that the relationship wasn't real, that was it. The role in the movie had been fulfilled. I, I, I mean, I mean, I never got the impression that he, that he killed her. I, I, I thought he just got up, realized what was going on, and walked out depressed. Uh, and then I saw some people talking about saying they thought he killed her. I'm like, where is that coming from? I, I, I say, like, if you have a chance, to watch it again or watch that YouTube video that is going to be probably featured somewhere in this. Um, check that out because there is a chance that he might have killed her. There's some evidence in there that he probably did. And I watched it again. I'm like, huh. Well, I don't know if it holds itself up, but it's an interesting thought. I don't think he's at that point yet in the movie where he's capable of doing stuff because he doesn't he doesn't have any ill will against her. It's just he suddenly realizes that everything he thought was a lie and it wasn't her fault. And I think that he I mean I, I mean as, as as many problems as he's got, he's not a a cruel person. No, but he's also one of those who will if he saw someone play a pawn like to his misery or his unfulfillment, he will have no problem ax him off. Like she, he did mention- she she she's never been mean to him though. She's just kind of been uh, uh, she's been across the hall. She's barely even acknowledged him. And I th- I, th- I think I think once he realizes that he walked into her apartment and she doesn't know who he is, I I, I think he's savvy enough to realize that that's what happened. I I don't know. I just don't buy it. Okay. All right. I'm gonna be on the fence about that, and I just want to see how the rest of the internet responds to it. It's it's something fun. I mean, give the internet something to debate about. They will. <laughs> oh, they will indeed. <laughs> Uh, anyway, just uh, so, so so yeah, just, just just wrapping up. I I enjoyed the movie. I think I'm generally positive on it. It's I I, I think where I'm going to settle on it is going to be depend on rewatches. So if I revisit this in a year or two, we'll see if I get anything more out of it, and it'll probably solidify whether I actually like it or not. But I enjoyed what it went for. Yeah, no, I I'm like I said, I I think I'm positive on it as well. I think the stuff that I kind of wish could have been done better is stuff that I think would have made it like a very like spotless, like perfect movie. But because of those shortcomings, I, I feel it does fall short. And I don't know, that's just me wanting more for what this was, you know, given a lot of acclaim for. But there's stuff I like about it. And yeah, overall, I really just give uh, Joaquin Phoenix all the applause for pulling off performance of the year. 
And uh, that'll do it for this episode of the Film Letters Podcast. Uh, next, what do we have coming up for our next episode? It's going to be a Halloween episode. Isn't that right, Nate? Yes, I believe so. Um, I guess we'll get Alex on board and we'll get our candy bags out and uh, discuss Halloween movies in general. So if anyone, I guess, doesn't have any idea what to watch for Halloween, we'll give some options. It'll be a fun laid back episode for, mm. for Halloween, just as Halloween should be. Yeah, we'll bring all our saltwater taffy so all of our mouths will be gummed up. Uh, Nate, where where can people find you online? Well, obviously you can find me here at Film Illiterates uh, doing these podcasts and videos for Joe, but you can also follow me on Instagram. I go by Nathan underscore Stone underscore Films as well as Starlord Rules where I cosplay Starlord. You can find our uh, videos and podcast episodes at filmilliterates.com. You can also find us on twitter.com slash filmilliterates, and you can find my uh, movie-watching activity on letterboxd.com slash film underscore illiterate. And with all that being said, continue watching movies and keep it easy.